Quaid of Tales from Beyond the Pale, and you're listening to Faculty of Horror. Bonjour to Le Monde, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the hard halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And as promised, we are here to talk to you about all things French, all things extreme, everything that lies in between those two seemingly disparate elements, which has found a home here in horror. Now, I have to say, this has probably been one of our most requested episodes. A lot of people have asked us to tackle this topic. A lot of people have cited various films in this movement, and it's quite a big movement, New French Extremity. And we were waiting and waiting because I was working on this book called Films of the New French Extremity, Visceral Horror and National Identity, published through McFarland, which you can buy right now. So we were holding off because we wanted to kind of coincide with the book coming out a little bit, give everyone time to digest, think about it, and let Andrea and I think about which films we wanted to talk about because, as I said, there are so many. That's right. And to that end, we came to maybe one obvious choice and one not-so-obvious choice. Independent of people asking for a new French Extremity Movement episode, the film Martyrs has been long, long requested. And again, it's one of those that is so full of great ideas. And we decided to pair that with another film that's maybe lesser known, another film that is just as brimming with really weird shit, a film called Calvaire. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, Andrea, have you ever been to France? I've never been to France. I have uh, never actually been off this continent. It's a bit of a sad situation. Well, I've actually been a couple times. So one of the first times I was there, I was actually to meet up with this guy who I met on a train in Vienna. And this was like, oh my God, this is like seven, eight years ago. So then I like romantically flew to Paris and we reconnected and we didn't think we would totally reconnect, but then we did and we had this amazing day. And I was trying to like make my plane back to the States, which was, you know, at sunset. But then we just kind of like fell in love and it was really amazing until I learned he was in this cult and he tried to sacrifice me and torture me until I experienced the afterlife. So that was really weird. But I, you know, I think there's some fond memories. There's another time I was in France and there's, it's always about a guy. There's this really cute guy, but I'm really shy. And so I made up all these ways to like get him to notice me. I was also really into sending gnomes around the world at that point. So I was doing a lot of that out of Montmartre. And then, you know, it was really weird. So the guy and I fell in love. And then we took this really beautiful road trip through the countryside. And we went to this inn, but it was actually run by neo-Nazis. That was so upsetting. And he died. But uh, I, I got away. But, you know, I was carrying someone's child at that point. Well, clearly the picture that I had painted of France was completely wrong, but I did pick up your book and I did have a really great time reading through it. If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that history is not so much my forte. So I do so love a book that really dives into history and presents everything so sociologically. And, you know, I might have written the foreword for this book, so I might be a little bit biased, but it really is a terrific book. And we are going to delve into these movies that are covered in the book, but we're going to try and give some insights and some conversation that the book does not provide. So please do feel free to pick up Alex's book. It's highly recommended reading, and we'll link to that in the episode notes. 
One of the reasons I got really interested in New French Extremity was because I think growing up, especially in North America, especially kind of the middle class upbringing I have, there is this vision of France and especially Paris as the city of light, the city of love. It's this kind of upmarket heritage thing that they have. And it's been marketed to us and branded and sold as this epicenter of art, culture and intellectualism. And then I started watching these films. Initially, I saw High Tension. And then years later, I saw Martyrs and then Inside. And I was like, these are obviously contemporary French films. And they were not melding with this image I had of France. And I think especially maybe if you're a woman, you might recognize this a bit more because there are so many books about how to diet like a French woman, how to raise a baby like a French woman. I read an article, I feel like, online every week or so about how to do your makeup like a French woman, how to dress like a French woman. So it's this disparity that I was seeing between this kind of tourism board marketing that we receive here in North America and films that are being made in in France on the fringes of French culture that were screaming for change and screaming to be heard and recognized and just saying that something was wrong. So that's kind of how my interest in this subgenre started to form and why I got really interested in it and why I do spend part of the book talking about the history of not only the country but also the film industry to understand why these films have been marginalized in so many different ways within their own country even though they have found a cult audience here in North America especially. Here in North America when these French films hit it was like what? France? Really? In the dawn of my horror fandom, so to speak, if I wanted to get at the really gritty stuff, if I wanted to get the ultra-violent, ultra-creative, ultra-bizarro, you always went J-horror. Maybe you dabbled in some other interesting European stuff. I'll never forget the first time I saw Necromantic, for example. There's a lot of different countries producing their own horror that speaks to their own anxieties and their own histories and their own situations, but there seemed to be a very sudden flood of stuff coming out of France. And so it deserved its own movement. And it's only now that we're able to look back and speak about the movement as such within its relationship to contemporary Western horror. And before we delve into the films that we're going to talk about today, I just wanted to kind of situate this movement. And for me, it happens within about a 10-year kind of mark, from the late 90s to the late aughts. So the first half of this movement was really confined to the art house cinema in France. And there were a lot of really celebrated auteurs making really violent and extreme films, and film critics didn't really know how to handle it. So they were being pushed to the outside within this... Um, you know, within this like kind of loving, cultured film, higher echelon nest that they were in. So these are films like Gaspar Noé's Irreversible, also his film I Stand Alone, films like Trouble Every Day, Romance, Sombre. There's so many brilliant films, and they are kind of more dramatic in some ways. They don't deal with horror explicitly, but they do deal with explicit violence and explicit sexuality. They are amazing and beautiful. And if you are interested in the horror side of this movement, which to me starts around the time of Alexandra Aja's High Tension, and then kind of carries the movement towards the end, if you are interested in this horror section of the films, I would definitely recommend going and checking out some of the earlier art house films, especially a film like Bruno Dumas' 29 Palms. It is possibly the most affecting and upsetting film I have ever seen. Wow, I haven't seen that one yet. Just 
have something cuddly to hold at the end of it. But it's it's really quite brilliant, and and I think these films all really deserve a place in our understanding of France, in our understanding of the film industry, in the understanding of film in general. And a lot of these films are really unfairly derided, which kind of pisses me off, and was part of the reason why I set out to write this book. Well, they certainly have a place in our podcast as of this episode. So without further ado, let's launch into 2004's Oddball Weirdo Calvaire. begins with Mark. Mark is a hokey performer who makes a living singing at small venues like retirement homes, which draws the attention of several older women to him. While driving to a Christmas show that could yield his biggest break yet, his car breaks down in the rural countryside. He is taken in by an older man named Bartel, who has an inn which is no longer in operation. Bartel tells Mark that his wife Gloria, who left him, was also a singer. Bartel feels a kinship with Mark because Bartel used to be a comedian and a performer as well. Bartel promises to fix Mark's car, but does not. When Mark confronts Bartel, Bartel knocks him out and sets his car on fire. When Mark comes to, Bartel has dressed him as a woman and only refers to him as Gloria from here on out. Bartel then goes into town, which he has previously warned Mark about, to tell the men there that Gloria has returned and to leave them alone. The men, who seem to operate as some kind of singular unit, then go to the inn where Bartel is trying to have Christmas with quote-unquote Gloria. They kill Bartel. They briefly kind of rate Mark, who eventually is able to escape. The villagers soon give chase, with only a few of them following Mark. Mark makes it all the way out to the countryside, when one of them, Robert, seems to fall into a sinkhole, and he's being consumed by the sinkhole, and he reaches out looking to Gloria, asking if she truly loved him. Mark eventually says yes, Gloria did, but speaking as Gloria, and Robert dies, and Mark faces an uncertain future in this rural landscape. It's rare for me to see a film and think about it and kind of come up with just one note. You know, there's always many, many interpretations to a piece of text or a piece of film. But when it came to this one, I strongly interpret it as something of a satire of patriarchy. And any observation I can make about this film comes back to that. You know, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian called it a brilliant black comic nightmare. And the director himself, I believe, used the term dark fairy tale or something to that effect. And there's certainly shades of comedy here and there. 
One of the films that Fabrice de Wells, who's the director of this film, has referred to as kind of an inspiration for Calvert is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think if you can think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a pseudo-dark comedy, Calvert kind of follows that same DNA. Now, I do think it's important to mention before we go too much further, and a couple listeners have already pointed this out to us absolutely correctly, that this is actually a Belgian film. And Fabrice de Wells is Belgian. It's not really set in a crazy specific location. It's just kind of small towns, rural landscapes, that kind of stuff. It feels very European, especially Western European. Now, the reason it kind of falls under the new French extremity banner, and people have argued about this, and that's fine, but we like this movie, so we're talking about it, is that it is a co-production between Belgium and France and Luxembourg. So there is French money invested in it, and it's in the French language, which to us silly North Americans kind of means it's French. But we know it's not, but here we are. Do Belgians not speak French? No, they do. Yeah, I think my French teacher in high school was actually Belgian. And I get complimented on my beautiful Parisian French all the time. (laughs) Well, maybe you can do the rest of the episode in that beautiful Parisian French. No merci. (laughs) Now, it's really interesting to me, and I think we're about to get into it, how you, Andrea, see this as a satire of patriarchy, whereas I came to this film, and I haven't watched either of these films in about a year, so I'm coming to them really fresh, and I tried to come up with some new ideas outside of my book to talk to you about today. And what it just reads as so strongly to me is a satire of the Christ story. Not only one of the biggest indicators is it's kind of set around Christmas, obviously Mark's going to a Christmas show, but it's like all of these little things that happen in the birth of Christ, and I'm not Christian, so I don't, I have like a really like Cole's Notes version of that story, but the way it's like Mark's car breaks down and he's welcomed into this empty inn by Bartel. There is room at the inn in this case, as well as there are several different points throughout the film where Mark makes a run for it. He's just like, shit is crazy. I'm a go. And he runs one of the initial times he's dressed up as Gloria quite early on in that pseudo transformation that happens for him. He runs and eventually Bartel kind of gets him back and he crucifies Mark. It's this absolutely bizarre scene, and I think it speaks to the strength of Fabrice de Wells as a director, because it doesn't really come off as one way or the other. It's not really obscenely gory. It's not funny, but it's in this weird valley in between those two things. One of the things I, I kind of struggled with a lot when I was watching the movie initially, and I really like the ending, that... It's very sad when Bartel dies, which is complicated in its own right. But then when Mark starts just to run for his freedom and he's chased by Robert, who's actually played by Philippe Nehan, who, if he looks familiar to any horror fans out there, that's because he plays the killer or La Toué in High Tension. And, you know, as Robert is asking for this love or forgiveness and Mark kind of acquiesces and gives it to him, it feels a little bit like a Christ-like gesture to me. (laughs) I did also pick up on that Christ-like feel to it. The scene where Bartel nails Mark to a cross is obviously very crucifixion-y, which, again, I kind of interpreted as as satire, like you said. Like, wasn't Jesus just trying to get where he was going before getting waylaid by people with their own fucked-up agendas, right? And then there's the title. The title is translated in the subtitles in the version that I saw as The Ordeal, which is a term that's laden with meaning. Obviously, it's a term used to describe witch trials, but Calvera actually translates more literally to Calvary, which is another name for Golgotha, which is where Jesus was crucified. And I don't think any of those are an accident at all. 
Now, I've read a lot of negative reviews that condemn this movie for being slow or poorly plotted, which, as you point out in your book, was an intentional move on the director's part, specifically to separate it from the formulaic American films. He didn't want to put jump scares where we would expect jump scares and twists and turns where we would expect them. But this film is also criticized for having scenes that were pointless. And I also saw reviews condemning Mark for being a douchebag. And so part of the reason I'm really happy to talk about this film is to have a different interpretation out there. Yeah, and I think Fabrice Duels does a great job of inverting a lot of the horror tropes we as a North American audience have come to expect. Like, one of the interviews I pull from in the chapter where I write about it, he says he doesn't want a lot of, like, boobs or women running around, and there are very few women, only at the very beginning, and they're all old. Right. They're all older, and the breasts that you see when a nurse kind of comes on to him, they're older. They're not the kind of sexy young thing. She's still very beautiful and attractive. But it's, again, it's that kind of inverse. And then, I mean, my God, we have to, I think we have to talk about the fact that there are, after, I think, minute five, no women in this film. Yes, indeed. I think that's really important. So one of the things that, if you haven't watched Calvera, and we really hope you do, is you have to go in willing to give yourself over to the mindset of this film. You can't really fight it. You shouldn't really try to fight any film, frankly, unless it's really offensive and gross. But in this case, there are no women in this village. The men that we meet all seem slightly out of touch. Bartel actually is kind of charming and kind of nice. So he says early on to Mark when, you know, before Mark expects that too much is up, that he'll fix the car and Mark's like, okay, I'm going to take a walk. Bartel tells him, don't go in the village. So Mark kind of heeds his warning and he's just walking along, but then he passes a farm and he encounters a group of men cheering on another man having sex with a pig. It's this absolutely bizarre scene because it's so unexpected and you think you're like, oh, is that what it is? And then it keeps going and you're like, oh, wow, that is what it is. And he really plays with the expectation of it and that you don't see very much, but the noises, the kind of dialogue that the men have really suggests and confirms what's going on. And obviously Mark gets the fuck out of there, returns to the inn and is okay. And then the second time the townspeople really kind of become a force of their own is when Bartel goes back into the little like kind of bar inn and tells them Gloria has returned, stay away from her. Mais c'est ma femme. Ma femme. There is an insinuation that Gloria was maybe a bit of a loose woman, that a lot of the men really liked her. Again, we never see Gloria, we never see any images of her, no flashbacks. So we are really just working off of Bartel's image of Gloria in his mind and how the men react. So as Gloria has returned, she has returned as Mark. And outside of the kind of sundress that he's wearing, there's very little to signify him as female in the way these men expect. So we are dealing with this kind of collective psychosis of this town that desperately wants a woman and will take it at any cost. So what do we have when we have a town without women? It seems like there's this kind of empty bit of them that is all missing. That's right. It's like this giant shared delusion. At first, I thought, okay, Bartel is fucked up. Maybe Boris will call him out on it. Maybe the townspeople will. Maybe somebody in this film is going to be like, hey, Bartel, that's not Gloria. 
that's a fucking dude. Nobody challenges him and everybody has their delusions of their own. Robert, as you say, is revealed to have had an infidelity with Gloria. And then we've got Boris chasing this dog, Bella, and he emerges with a cow. He's like, look, I found Bella. Nobody says, dude, that's a fucking cow. But these narrators, as Alex said, are so unreliable. There's no photography to be shown. There are no flashbacks. We just have to take them at their word that maybe there never was any Gloria. Maybe Bella was always a cow. And doesn't that kind of signify Gloria and Bella is the way we think of religion? Like, we all just believe God because someone, we, obviously, we don't all believe God. But that idea, like someone just said, there's a God up there and he's going to do that. And now we all have our different interpretations of that. And right now, like Andrea and I are working on the assumption that there actually was a Gloria at one point. There could have not been a glory in this. And we don't know. And I think that's kind of brilliant. And I like the way that it just kind of reflects and refacts off of all the supporting characters and especially Bartel, because you get the sense of what it means to him. And as he's being horrible to Mark dressed as Gloria, he teases him at some point. He obviously crucifies him. And there are horrible things that happen to him physically. But he's in love with this person. He's, you know, in love with this idea of Gloria, this singer, this person that everyone wanted to be around when the inn was the happening place to be. And aren't we all just still holding on to these notions? And I think we all hold on to these notions in our own lives. So this is that kind of, we'll say this word probably a lot in this episode, the extreme version of that, that kind of, as Andrew was saying, that shared delusion of wanting to believe and what we need to believe in to keep going. That's right. And as with religion, Gloria is real enough in her effects. Whether or not she actually existed is quite irrelevant, especially as regards Mark. He doesn't give a shit because he is in this stew. Now, I mentioned before that I interpreted it as a satire of patriarchy. I interpreted it as a very feminist film because when I started taking notes about all these things that are happening to Mark, about his objectification, I was like, they are treating him like a woman. And once that was in my head, I just couldn't get it out. First of all, because of the way Mark is objectified by the elderly women in the nursing home, the film opens with him putting on makeup, which, first of all, traditionally, of course, the domain of women. And there's nothing overtly sexual about his performance. Avant la fin du mois, quelle drôle d'époque Tout se disloque He's crooning. He's far from Magic Mike here. But that is the widely accepted definition of seduction for women. His lyrics are about being together forever and love being the refuge from this cruel world. It's considered feminine aphrodisiac, and these old biddies just eat it up. He's visited afterward by a lady who propositions him sexually. She thought that he looked at her a special way during the performance, and so she thought he might like to hook up. And then there's that woman who sees him off and hugs him for just a little bit too long and slips those lewd photos of herself into his pay envelope. The elderly home is like this place for attention-starved women where there are no men to be found, which is the absolute flip side of the town he winds up in later. Yeah, in a sense, the ordeal, if you want to take this kind of Americanized title of Calvair, which I don't love, but let's take it in that. The ordeal for Mark is 
he actually has to, on some level, begin to understand the things he's singing about. So, you know, you open the film with, as Andrew is saying, that kind of croony, silly, over-the-top song, which renders a really great scene to open a film with, in my opinion. And then it ends with him having to quietly say to someone that he loves them as someone else in order for them to get some kind of peace. These two things are not dissimilar, but they are on opposite fucking ends of the spectrum. It's one of the great ways, I think, if you can, you know, deal with the pace, if you can, you know, handle the strangeness of this film... Calvary pays off in so many brilliant ways, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why Andrew and I both gravitate towards it. That's right. There's a very performative element to Mark because, indeed, he's served up pretty bland. Like, we know that he wants to be a star, but he has no real personality or desires or goals other than that. He endures these horrors and he tries to escape when he can, but he's mostly a passive, empty victim of this bad circumstance, which is a character trope that is so normally assigned to women that when I try to think of this film with a woman in Mark's place, it feels like a very conventional and not shocking horror film, which makes his gender that much more conspicuous. And it really serves to illustrate this interesting double standard. And I think when we talk about Mark's journey, that's one of the things that really brings it back to why this film, for me, kind of renders itself as new French extremity or why I think we like to include it under that banner. Because for anyone who's a horror fan, you kind of know that we were starting to get all of these horror New French Extremity films around the same time that we were getting like Cabin Fever, Saw, all of those things that would eventually become known as torture porn. And sometimes these films are labeled as torture porn. Now, the distinction for me between these two subgenres, and they both have their place, and they're both great, and they both fill different needs, but they do fill very different needs. For me, torture porn is very much about violence, violence that is actively occurring and is consistently occurring. And it's almost like set piece to set piece to set piece of violence. And you're kind of being put through this ordeal yourself as an audience member. Now, with New French Extremity, and I think one of the reasons why a lot of us tend to gravitate towards it very strongly, if we do at all, it's because these aren't necessarily violent films. They are films about violence and the after effects of violence and the damage that these films can yield on their characters. So essentially, all of these characters, and especially in the next film we're going to talk about, have these horrifying things happen to them, and it changes them, and it changes the world around them. I think that's what I like so much about a lot of these journeys that you see throughout so much of New French Extremity, is that these characters have horrible things happen to them, and they somehow survive, or maybe they don't, or something happens, but the world is different. But the endings to pretty much all of these films is so open-ended. Like, we, we are just left with Mark standing alone in a field, beaten, bruised, bloody, and the camera just pans to these kind of, like, nature shots. Yeah, it pans to these nature shots that are moving by horizontally quickly, which to me implies a vehicle, which to me implies maybe escape. But once again, just as you were saying, who the fuck cares? It doesn't change my reading of the film at all. It doesn't change my enjoyment of him. And whether he continues on is fine with me either way. Now, among the more bizarre scenes of the film, the film that actually really clued me into the fact that this was, in fact, a dark comedy and this was, in fact, supposed to be kind of silly 
is the dance scene in the bar. And again, I take this to be a satirical look at what life might be like without a feminine side. These men are manly country men, and they drink beer, and if they must dance, it's going to be graceless and joyless and aggressive to an ugly, tuneless dirge. You know, they don't touch one another because no homo, which is so interesting when pitted against the conventionally understood French dance form, ballet. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, this iteration of quote-unquote townspeople, they really move like an organism. It's like hive mind to the extreme. And they function together, they move together, they attack together, they fuck together. It's this thing that Bartel knows that he and Mark slash Gloria are going to have to navigate. Bartel thinks he's getting out ahead of it by going and telling them. Maybe it's showing off, maybe it's protection, maybe it's a bit of both, maybe it's some other stuff in there too. But in Bartel's announcement of Gloria's return, he immediately leaves. And then this, as Andrew was saying, this dirge music starts up and this clumpy dance happens. And to me, it just felt like this is what people in the city are scared of. They are scared of this kind of mob mentality. They are scared of this kind of rural backwater hillbilly-esque-ness. And I think that's another way it kind of parallels with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's very much an urban fear of a rural landscape that, does, is anyone checking up on those guys? Do we, do we fucking know? Are we, are we sure? Are they okay? Are they still doing that dance? Do we know? I don't know. So I think it has a little bit, again, it's another element of satire to it, or it's another element of confronting that fear that people have about the rural landscape that is left untended, that has been left to grow weeds and wildflowers and what else grows there. Right. That's what you mentioned in your book. And I thought that was such a great observation. It's almost like a caricature. It's like an exaggeration of, oh, this is how hillbillies dance. They just stand there and go, blah, blah, blah. Like that. It's a joke. Well, I mean, even just to think a little bit about another famous French townspeople iteration in North American culture, if you look at the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast, it's like Belle's fucking smart or, you know, smart for a Disney princess. But the rest of them, a lot of them are pretty fucking dumb and they're all led by Gaston. Like they're led by this kind of weird machismo thing and they literally have pitchforks and fire and they want to kill the beast and it's that sense of looming revolt that was always such a looming presence especially in the earlier centuries of france as a country people in versailles were fucking terrified of the peasants yeah, and like a lot of movies featuring a city slicker encountering hillbillies often show city life in contrast to like an adapted isolationism, so to speak. So for whatever reason, there are no women here, period. And so the men have taken to this delusion and essentially bestiality. But this is one of the things that makes Calvert so interesting is how different this community is from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example, where again, there are no women, but they're not dancing and they're not fucking pigs. Well, maybe they are, but we don't get to see it. So in wrapping up our discussion of Calvert, I think we maybe just both want to touch on the character of Bartel and how undefined he is. He is this amorphous blob of a character in a certain way. He kind of adapts to different things in different ways. And his motivations, his tactics change throughout the film. And the performance by Jackie Boyer is, is terrific. It's at once warm and inviting, but also threatening. There is a real mix in there that happens. So you never quite know what you're going to get with Bartel. 
tell, and that's what makes him dangerous to us as an audience. And for me, when I knew that this film was making a really big impact on me was when Bartel is killed. And I actually like felt bad. Like I was sad when he died. And it made me begin to reevaluate the film because, you know, for most of it, you're just like, fuck, this guy's torturing this man. And then I think towards the end, I just started to realize how lonely he is. Because while the townspeople have their blobness, Bartel doesn't have anyone. Oh, no, he's got Boris. <laughs> he's got Boris and his imaginary Bella. I did feel like he was perhaps the most sympathetic character simply because he's the only one who got that airtime. He's the only one who got to talk about his feelings of loss and loneliness and isolation. And when he talks about how, you know, without Gloria, I've completely lost my sense of humor. I've lost all my enthusiasm. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for that. I mean, I know it's a really romantic notion, but I'm also resistant to the idea that, you know, somebody else holds the key to your every happiness. And if there is a Gloria, I would sure as fuck not want to live in that ass backwards countryside with this guy in this inn next to this weird fucked up town. Well, it also feels a little bit familiar to a certain degree, certainly when he's talking about, you know, how it doesn't mean anything anymore and he misses her and, and she was an artist and he used to be an artist and uh, or a performer. And it feels a little bit like the guy at the end of the bar, you know, who's sitting there by himself and gets a little bit drunk and just starts talking to you and you're like, oh, dear. But then you realize it's kind of sad, so you kind of listen for a bit. It feels a little bit like him and I feel like there's such a place for that in masculinity. And I think that's where there's a lot of fear and anxiety over being alone and being left and forgotten. I think that is for everyone. But I think there's something very male about the way that this is portrayed. It's that he lost some status when she left. She was this beautiful, enigmatic thing and she left. Left, and then he lost so much. He doesn't have an in anymore. He doesn't have anything. And the fact that he can kind of see Gloria as a pseudo status symbol, I think, is really interesting and almost explains why he would latch so hard onto Mark. That's right. And as you mentioned, the film does take place around Christmas time. And when Boris does find Bella, maybe. There's a scene of them at the table where they're like, oh, we're a happy family again, and everyone is so happy. And the camera just spirals round and round the room into Bartel's madness, Boris's madness, Mark's absolute pain, the empty gaze of a cow that thinks it's a dog. Like, it just goes round and round, and that dizzying sensation continues with the attack and the murder. So it's all very disorienting. But that is, for me, the only moment of real pathos I felt in the entire film. Yeah, and I think that's about it for us on Calvaire for this conversation. But we're going to get a lot deeper and a lot darker with our next film, and that's 2008's Martyrs.
opens with a young girl named Lucy who escapes a warehouse, bloody and bruised and screaming. She's admitted to an orphanage where she's plagued by nightmares and the delusion that a violent being is stalking her, but she befriends another little girl named Anna and the two become very close. Ten years later, Lucy breaks into a suburban home, interrupting a family's Sunday morning breakfast by murdering them with a shotgun. She calls Anna and tells her that she's found the people who abused her as a child. Anna comes to the house and attempts to take care of Lucy and clean up the mess, but Lucy is continually attacked by her imaginary assailant and winds up cutting her own throat. Devastated, Anna phones her mother, but their conversation is cut short when she discovers a secret basement under the house that fits Lucy's description of the place she was imprisoned and abused, and discovers another woman imprisoned there. She tries to help the woman, but suddenly people with guns arrive and question Anna before taking her prisoner and introducing her to a woman known only as Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle explains to Anna that she belongs to a secret philosophical society and their aim is to torture subjects into entering a transcendental state that will give them insight into the afterlife. After that, Anna is subject to extreme torture in a cell until she reaches a state of calm that her captors determine is the next stage of her transition. They skin her alive, and when she survives the procedure with an air of euphoria, the Mademoiselle and the rest of the secret society is summoned. However, when Anna whispers her testimony to Mademoiselle, the lady retreats to the bathroom and shoots herself in the head. Now, spoiler alert, a la mode. Obviously, I think if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that we're going to deliver a synopsis. And for a movie like Martyrs, we cannot talk about it without talking about the beginning and the middle and the end. That said, right out the gates, I have to say that I fucking love this film. I love this film for so many reasons, not the least of which is that it essentially brought Alex and I together, but I love that it's simultaneously one of the most intellectually compelling and violently gruesome films I can name. There's nothing I don't like about this film. There isn't a single scene or piece of dialogue that I find problematic or unnecessary. It's kind of one of the linchpins of this movement. It is a linchpin of contemporary horror, in my opinion. It's it's very much one of those films where if you say, oh, I'm a fan of horror, someone will inevitably ask you, have you seen Martyrs? Not always as a challenge, just to ask, because it's one of those films that when you see it, you want to talk about it and you want to think about it and you want to engage with it. I think if you perceive the film the way Andrea and I do, and that's why, you know, I, I saw the film a year or so before I met Andrea, and I remember watching it alone in my apartment, and when I started the film, it was sunny outside, and when it ended, it was in a torrential thunderstorm downpour, and I was just, like, sitting quietly, and I couldn't move myself from this place. It felt so overwhelming, and I felt like I'd been taken on a journey, and I felt like I had experienced so much, and there was so much about humanity in there, and there's so much violence. There are parts that I always turn away from when I watch it. It's a film that really challenges you because it challenges you with the violence of humanity. And I think all the characters in this film act out of a sense of humanity, wanting to understand aspects of it, wanting to experience it. And I think that's what makes this film hard to dismiss. It doesn't make it easy to watch, but you should never dismiss a film like this, in my opinion. 
Now, you mentioned earlier, Alex, it's a rare example of a film that depicts extreme violence against a woman, but it isn't at all misogynist. It is not a violent film so much as it is a film about violence. And this is partially because this violence is never titillating. It is so brutal and it always serves a purpose. I mean, we've got a beautiful actress who is, you know, not wearing very much, let's say, but nothing about her ordeal is in the slightest bit sexy. And that is an aspect of torture porn. When we talk about torture porn, the porn element is that, you know, this is just candy for the eyes. This is just feast for the senses. But that is not the case at all in Martyrs. No, very much so. And in the, you know, kind of more torture porny films, if there's a captor doing something in a film like that, let's say a hostel, let's say a saw, there's an element of that torturer getting some kind of pleasure from it. In this film, we see the torturers kind of interact with the women as they have to because they have to beat them, starve them, force feed them, etc., etc. But their face kind of drops after it and they just walk away. And sometimes they, they get a bit excited towards the end when they see that Anna has like reached this next stage, but it's not a sexualized thing. In fact, it's one of the women captors who doesn't. She's just like, it's happening. It's really fucking finally happening. And I think that's for me what really separates it. And the only reason it, there are so many women in this film and why it centers around women so strongly, and it's a trope we've talked about in horror on this very podcast where women make more empathy pathetic victims to a certain extent. And they talk about that in the film. And there's a sense that because a woman is perceived to be more empathetic or more emotional, she can kind of transcend certain things and, you know, be this kind of conduit of pain to something else. And that's that's what the film kind of propositions. So we're just, we just roll with it. I mean, they're the crazy cult who's been doing this for decades. I mean, what do we know? That's right. And throughout these torture scenes, the camera is very much fixed on Anna, you know, we see in some of the beatings, we see that it's a big man kind of straight face. But for the most part, when she's being fed and stuff like that is happening, the camera does not go above the other person's waist, per se. We see exactly what Anna is going through and the stages she's going through it with regard to how she's dealing with the punishment and torture. Like at first, she's shocked and surprised and then she's angry and then finally she's resigned. And that is the arc that she has to go through. That is the arc that this sequence secret society wants her to go through until they believe that she's ready for the next stages. It's necessary for both empathy and story purposes. And I also found a twinge of that with that family scene in the beginning. I remember when I watched this in preparation for this podcast, it was the first time I'd seen it in several years. I saw it several years ago, but that family scene at the beginning was a lot longer than I remembered. And at first I was kind of like, you know, they're spending a lot of time here. Where is this going? But then when the rest of it happens, you can see it really clearly from a narrative standpoint. Not only does it explain how Lucy was able to find them because the daughter was a champion swimmer, it also serves to illustrate this upper middle class family who is so steeped in their own privilege that we've got this snot-nosed 19-year-old who's like, well, I don't want to go to law school. I don't want to go to private school. You're spending all this money, but I don't care. And then you get this onslaught of actual pain and suffering. I love how it shows the veneer of modern life before smashing it to bits in the second and third acts. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's such a huge part of my reading of French history that it has this pristine veneer of, as I was mentioning earlier in this episode, that upmarket heritage. And it's, you know, this very bougie kind of family life, everything stainless steel, it's super clean. They bicker about money and ambition. And then it all comes crashing down when Lucy shows up. And then there are so many elements that code Lucy and Anna as other. There's a love between them. There's kind of a mixed race background to both of them, there are things that render them as not accessible into this world. So Lucy actually has to shotgun her way into this house. She has to blow open the doors to get herself access in there. There's so much power to this film. And I think one of the criticisms I've heard a lot of this film is that it feels like two different films. From the second that Anna, after Lucy has died, after she's killed herself, enters into that lower thing and finds the other woman. That's when it becomes a different movie. But to me, those two halves inform so much about each other that I think if you feel that way, we don't want to change your mind about that. You're absolutely entitled to those opinions. But I think we both really strongly recommend reconsidering how those two halves inform each other. And I spent a lot of time on my chapter on martyrs talking about how much those two halves owe to each other. We see the whole film through Anna's eyes, essentially, but there is a glimmer of doubt in Anna. There's a glimmer of doubt that Lucy has, first of all, found the right people. There's a glimmer of doubt in... Lucy as to whether or not it was morally okay to slaughter their children. She grapples with that. That's an emotional thing for her while it's happening. Well, I think one of those instances that plays so brilliantly into that, and it's a subtle moment, but there is, you know, for the first little bit when, you know, Lucy is running around killing this family and she's upset, she's emotional, like this is not an easy thing. She's not like Mila Jovovich running around in a Resident Evil film. You feel every single shot that she fires from that gun. And then you have this female figure which follows her and tortures her. It's this demented, primal woman who it's so terrifying to watch. And that's what Lucy's fighting against. She's killing these people in hopes that if she kills them, this figure will finally leave her alone. So as an audience, we're privileged to watch this woman attack Lucy because now we understand Lucy. And then as the narrative begins to shift more towards Anna, we see Lucy grappling with this and the woman begin to bang Lucy's head against the wall, but then it cuts to Anna's perception of it. And we see Lucy take her head in her hands and bang her own head against the wall. So now we as an audience fully understand that this is Lucy's internal monster that she is fighting. It's not a real thing. It's, you know, this is not a supernatural film to a really large extent. It's much more based in reality. I also really loved how the matriarch of the family, I don't think she's ever really given a name, but she actually survives the initial onslaught. She comes to in a tub with the corpses of her family strewn about her, and Anna is struck with this, okay, this woman is still alive, maybe I should help her. She tries to help her, and that's coming from a space of... I don't even think she has time to contemplate her doubt of Lucy's story. It's just, here's a human being in pain, and I need to get you out of here. But to Lucy, when she witnesses that, it complicates their relationship so much into, you didn't believe me. And you definitely get the sense that these two are extremely close, and part of the glue of their relationship is Anna's support and unconditional 
belief in Lucy's story. And when Lucy finally dies and Anna is just undone, you can see all of the guilt and all of the doubt and all of that evaporates in the second half of the film when she realizes that, hey, fuck, Lucy was absolutely right. And there's so much trauma and it's such an interesting discussion of trauma because if you have friends or you yourself have suffered any kind of abuse or assault or anything like that, Hopefully you have the allies who will help you get through this and help you get through any kind of PTSD or anything that resonates from there. But for so many other people who want to help, it's like they were never truly there. So how can you know? There's always this element of doubt. And I think that's where the tension between Anna and Lucy lies. Anna was never there. She loves Lucy more than anything. And she can't say for sure what happened to her that affected her like this. And so there is that disparity between them. Now, I think it's you know important to look at the effects of violence throughout this film. So obviously, we see the after effects of violence with Lucy, and she's tormented by this female figure that slashes her and beats her and hits her, but has this loving, tender moments with her. And then the woman who Anna finds in the captive area who has the metal headpiece drilled into her head. Anna tries to help her, but she is always trying to scratch off her skin or carve off her own skin. And the Mademoiselle later tells her, oh, that woman always saw bugs on her body. So she was always trying to cut herself. And when Anna is captured, what is Anna's other? What is the thing that invades her mind? It's Lucy. Lucy telling her to let go, Lucy loving her, Lucy doing all those things. So for Lucy, the torture and the pain and all of those things actually led her to transcend because she was able to love. I love how this film bothers to give all of these victims of torture their own psychoses and their own reactions to the trauma. As Alex was just saying, Anna hears Lucy's voice telling her that she has nothing left to fear. And in the context of their codependent relationship, where Anna has essentially lived her life loving Lucy and trying to help and comfort her, and she realizes that this burden has been lifted, and Lucy isn't suffering anymore, and neither should Anna. That's part of her transcendence. And that is such cinematic poetry to me, frankly. So getting into some semantics, a martyr is defined by the movie as a témoin, which is French for witness. And this is the word's original meaning. It was adapted into the more widely understood religious connotation in the early Christian centuries. Now, this new fangled definition refers to somebody who is executed for refusing to recant their religious beliefs. But it can also extend to somebody who chose to die for any belief or principle or cause rather than recanting. And the term has something of a heroic connotation, because clearly a martyr is somebody who really values their convictions more than their own life. And its use in the film here is really interesting because it's so weird for me to think of an unwilling martyr. It seems like an oxymoron. You know, you'd assume anyone who got to witness the word of God or the afterlife got this opportunity due to the strength of their conviction, right? But Anna is an unwilling martyr in the secret society's quest for divine knowledge, and you can certainly be an unwilling witness. Now, within several religious orthodoxies, 
changing your religious tune to save your hide is a surefire way to get you a spot in hell. And when I think of a martyr, the first person I think of is Joan of Arc, who was a peasant woman who became a military leader who claimed that many of her political decisions were guided by divine insight. And she claimed she had mystical visions that compelled her to seek audience with the Dauphin at the time and get his permission to expel the English, which was a military success. And she was a hero until she was captured. Now, her trial for heresy is one of the most interesting trials in history, and it's well documented on the internet. And if you're in the slightest bit interested, I'd really recommend that you check it out because she not only insisted that she received divine counsel, which at the time was really, well, you're not a priest. You're not even a man. You're telling me, you no. She refused to divulge what was between her and her God. And worst of all, she dared wear men's clothing. She was burned at the stake in 1431. Really interesting figure, but I kind of digress. I have to admit that this is perhaps a oppositional opinion. It's definitely contrary to a lot of reviews I've read and indeed contrary to maybe your interpretation as you gave in the book, but I don't actually interpret this film as anti-religious and I have my doubts as to whether or not Anna actually achieved any form of witnessing or martyrdom. In fact, one of my favorite things about the film is I feel like it secularizes the kind of evil that we often associate with religion and it places the evil in the pursuit of the unknowable, this time through pseudoscientific means. I mean, obviously, the idea of the afterlife itself is something of a religious concept. In a previous episode, I talked about how from a sociological, structural, functionalist perspective, religion serves a purpose toward helping us confront our own mortality. It gives people a purpose in what can seem like a hopeless existence, and it gives people something to look forward to after life, particularly in historical periods where life was really, really fucking bad. And in Martyrs, I really get the sense that this secret society isn't so much religious as they are affluent and wealthy. They're kind of these elderly, well-dressed people in big black cars. And, and so instead of turning to a Bible or a doctrine, they're paying through the nose for scientific empirical evidence of the afterlife. They've got a hypothesis and they're testing it. Everything is measured and observed. And these women they're torturing are essentially lab rats. I think that's definitely a very fair uh, interpretation of it. I think what this film kind of does for me is it posits, and again, I say this as someone who was never raised in religion. I was raised by atheists, so I have a very, very outsider's perspective on religion. But I have known religious people who have truly done good in this world and have done it just through this kind of selflessness that they had, and they just wanted to help people. So I don't believe that all religion is bad, not at all. But I think organized religion can lead people to do bad things. And I think it's, again, it's this huge gamut. There's a lot of gray areas in there. So it's it's hard to talk about in some ways. But for me, what this film does in a lot of ways is it posits an organized religion against spirituality. And all of the things Andrea was just saying that this organization is not, I tend to associate with religious extremism especially. So that's the kind of parallel I make in my head, and that's my interpretation. And for me, what the confrontation is, is that Anna 
simply through love is spiritual. She's able to have all this stuff flow through her. And I think that's one of the reasons why this film offers up so many interpretations. I think it does offer a very privileged view of the afterlife. In fact, one of the strangest, funniest things I find about this movie is that the woman who is head of this sect or this cult, she's an old woman, and she goes by Mademoiselle. Not Madame. Mademoiselle. This kind of hanging on to youth. It's never mentioned, it's never dealt with, it just, it's always rung funny for me, that little bit. So it's that obsession with youth, and when the cult or the sect gathers together at the end, it's all old white people, as Andrea says. It's very much this privilege, so when they're all confronting this notion of life existing through a woman who's been kind of coded within the film as gay, and, you know, from a mixed-race background, and she's not well off, as far as we know. She was in an orphanage or a mental institution, whatever that was. She has almost every disadvantage you could think of in life, and yet she has risen to more powerful than all of them. And she rose to that place through love, love and compassion, and that was something that seems to be born within her. And the fact that she witnessed not only Lucy suffering, the woman she found captive suffering, but her own. So there are so many people at place, and she almost did it as this... I don't know, it just feels like this really beautiful and amazing and poetic fuck you to anyone that would marginalize or harm any kind of person who is not part of their group. Well, that's right. And again, this ties into the elitism that I was talking about of the upper middle class family that we meet at the beginning. This group is searching for knowledge. The Mademoiselle points out in her horrible photo album that the martyrs of the past all came from different religious backgrounds and convictions. Some were just victims of accident or circumstance. So their faith isn't being tested here, nor is the group really trying to prove the existence of God per se. It's knowledge that they're after. It's religious certainty, but in the form of empirical science. And it's knowledge that's so forbidden that Mademoiselle can't bear to live with it or even share it, which is why she tells Thomas to keep down. What a doubting Thomas. Like some things shouldn't be known and some things aren't knowable to people who haven't been there and haven't been through it. So all these ivory tower academics writing about the working class and the proletariat, like fucking preaching to the choir, man. She isn't the one who bore witness. Anna did. And as they say, you had to be there. Now, do you have a theory or an imaginary ending? Or do you have a hypothesis as to what Anna might have said? Because in some of the reviews I've read, people are like, I like to think this. And I love that. And I really hope, I expect to get a lot of feedback on this episode as to your interpretations of what Anna might have told Mademoiselle. I thought a lot about that. And I don't answer that in my book because I didn't want to answer it. And every time I, and I thought about this movie so much over the years, and every time I've gone down the path of maybe she said X, Y, and Z, I've kind of come back and been like, no, does that make sense? Or how does that influence that? Or what does that mean? And, you know, I eventually talk myself out of it or, or something else comes up. But what I choose to believe Anna said out of my own fandom, like not as a film critic or thinker, is just like, because of what you've done, you'll never know. Ah, that's so awesome because it is so close to mine. Really? Yep. Ah. I always like to think that Anna said, yeah, 
There's a heaven, and it's awesome, and everybody has beautiful, thick eyelashes, and you and your posse aren't ever going to know because of what you did to all these women. Now go tell your friends about it, bitch. You know, like, I had shorter versions, and then I watched her speak, and I was like, no, there's a couple of sentences, and, you know, after our Aliens episode, I like to pretty much end every declarative sentence with the word bitch. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's because I care about Anna and Lucy so much in this film. And you want to believe, or I, I want to believe that Anna's suffering was not for nothing. Right. That it, it continued to give her power and that through her love, through her compassion. I mean, that's, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast, as you have brought up so articulately, we try to believe in religion. We try to do by religion, you know, even though I'm somewhere between agnostic and atheist. I always just try to, you know, do unto others is all of that. I, you know, you try to be good and you try to be kind to the best of your ability and you want to have some idea that maybe this is karma or it pays off or something. And I love that the film ends on Anna's face. It doesn't end on the old white people freaking out. It doesn't end on the mademoiselle's corpse. It ends on Anna looking up. And I think that's so much stronger and so much more powerful than anything else. Well, yeah, and any other hypothesis I can think of, like the film is so nihilistic that I really can't imagine Lucy saying, no, there's no afterlife, because I feel like the mademoiselle would have been like, all right, she's done on to the next. Like, there was definitely an answer. Yeah, (laughs) there's an answer. There's definitely an answer. And the fact that this film is able to frame it that way, raising such huge, huge questions right before the end. And I I feel like whatever answer you speculate really says a lot about how you interpreted the film, which is why I can't wait to hear from our listeners on this one. So that's kind of our take on Martyrs. And, you know, we could do a podcast for four years discussing a minute each episode of this film. Like, there's so much in it. But this is our broad strokes. This is the stuff that spoke to us. But I do want to mention what Pascal Laguerre, who was the director-writer of this film, talked about a lot. He said a lot about this film, that it had to do with his depression, and he suffered a lot from depression, and how he wanted to make something beautiful and artistic and fulfilling that said something out of depression and out of that kind of hopelessness and that loss. And I think he absolutely achieved it. It's a really stunning piece of work. Again, I can kind of understand if someone didn't like it or someone doesn't want to watch it. So that's obviously totally open and totally out there. But I, I think for both Andrea and I, this is something that comes from a really dark place. And it comes from a dark place from the writer director out of depression, out of confusion, out of coming out of France and this heavily Catholicized society. And he mentions this quite a bit in a lot of interviews and creating something that does something with this. And I think for Andrea and I, as you've heard, it speaks to us about the victimhood, about surviving, about love, about compassion about all of the things that we aspire to be in a lot of different ways. And I think it does it quite brilliantly and quite confidently. And um, it's a very singular film. Unapologetically, like couched in all of this violence. I think that's what makes it such a tremendously powerful film is that, you know, gorehounds are going to watch it for the beatings and they're going to come away with, oh, God, what am I thinking? I'm thinking right now. I'm thinking and I'm feeling. There's a lot of myself that when I watch horror films, and I feel like I watch a horror movie a day these days, I can turn off the gory parts. I'm not really a gore hound. I don't love that stuff. So I can turn that off and I just kind of watch and it just kind of washes over me. But from the first time I saw Martyrs, 
I couldn't disengage from it. And I think that speaks to the power of the film. And Laguerre has gone on to do a film called The Tall Man with Jessica Biel, which in my estimation is not very good. I haven't seen it. I did not enjoy it. It's it's just, it's kind of dumb. Like, it's kind of silly. And it was kind of his, like... Martyrs got him quite a bit of clout, premiered at TIFF in North America and, uh, you know, a limited distribution. It kind of found a home on DVD and it found our like weird little horror community via that. And, you know, a lot of people have embraced it and it's been a real crowd favorite, if you can call it that. But the audience found it and has carried it forward. And then he had the American opportunity to, you know, make a film with a frankly B-list celebrity who's not a bad actress, but, you know, she's does what she can. It's just a messy, kind of boring, kind of lame film. I, I I just didn't respond to it. And it has, it suffers from one of those like, this is a twist ending. And you're like, oh dear. Now in the final stages of Alex's book, she became privy to an advanced copy of The Martyrs remake. And friend that she is to me, she invited me to bear witness to it along with her, and suffered we did. I will say that as I was developing this book and writing this book, news broke of A Martyr's Remake, and the production company, which I think rhymes with Rum House, had decided to film it in secret for some reason because, God forbid, anyone have any backlash. And then they just kind of announced a release date. It was going to, you know, do festivals and and then eventually get a VOD, DVD, Blu-ray release. And I happened to be talking to someone who knew that I was writing this book, and they hooked me up with an advanced copy like a month or so before the film actually kind of hit an accessible airwave. So I did get to see it, and I went over to Andrea's house and watched it with her and her partner. And... It was a hell of a night, guys. It was a real hell of a night. And so we had the opportunity to see it before a lot of people had. And one of the things that kind of shocked me, so I actually write a little bit about the remake in the book, just because the remake for me, in my mind, proves why this movement had to be French. It just iterated so much of what these films are and what their Frenchness is in its sheer Americanness. And this glossy, hopeful thing that it does. So I, we watched it, and I, you know, a week or so later, I submitted my manuscript to McFarland, the publisher, and went on my merry way. And then, obviously, I was kind of like keeping an ear to the ground on Martyrs, the remake coming out, and obviously it would be reviewed and it would get talked about. And I've read some not terrible reviews of it, which is odd to me because I feel like the remake completely misunderstands what the original is about and what what it is. Which is interesting to say, because as we said, both Alex and I kind of had different readings of this. And I, I respect and appreciate everyone's readings of the original. And yet, you know, we don't like to bash movies here at the Faculty of Horror. We really don't. But... I, I can't find a single redeeming quality about that remake. I had the wonderful cathartic opportunity to tear it to bits in Rue Morgue magazine. <laughs> Dave knew I had seen it and he was just like, do you want to review it? I was like, do I? You just want to add to the cacophony of bad reviews of this film. If we can track down that review and post it somehow, we absolutely should because you should have won a Pulitzer for that. Oh, thanks, man. It was really fun to get to watch it with Andrea at her place where, we, you know, we had a bottle of wine. I think we had pizza and we were just hanging out watching it. And both Andrea and I were just yelling at the TV, just being like, no, oh, my God, that's like insane. 
And it's this weird, again, as I've said, glossy, pretty, this is so unfeminist of me to say, but unballsy version of martyrs. Like, it kind of resembles martyrs. Like, you know that quote in Clueless where Cher says, it's like a Monet. What's a Monet? Oh, from far away it's good, but up close it's just a big old mess. I feel a lot of that in this Martyrs remake. It pisses me off in a lot of ways, but to be fair, I, I don't think it'll get a lot of traction. I don't think it has gotten a lot of traction. And I think if anything, I, I hope it's made people go back and revisit the original if they hadn't already seen it. The remake also has one of my favorite bits of physical comedy in contemporary film. And I don't want to spoil it in case you do want to go see it, because I have actually said to a lot of people who are fans of Laguerre's Martyrs that, oh, if you really love that, you should actually check out the remake. And, and I do endorse that. If you guys are interested, check it out, because it's crazy. Like, it kind of follows it, but then it also totally doesn't follow it. So it's kind of worth seeing. And if you guys are really curious about my favorite bit, message me and I'll let you know. It's just imagine this incredibly nihilistic film being turned into a feel-good film. Which is populated by American Eagle outfitter models. And, you know, that can work. Like, I, I can think of examples. You think of Johnny Cash covering Nine Inch Nails. Like, sometimes it happens, but this was a colossal disaster. It was mared, so to speak. I transcended after it. So that is our discussion on New French Extremity. As always, we want to hear what you think. What are your interpretations? What do you think Anna said at the end? What kind of eyelashes was the Mademoiselle wearing? We want to know. You can hit us up, social media, info at Faculty of Horror. We're both on Twitter. You can find us there. So there are a lot of ways to interact with us. And I'm going to do my final plug for this book. I feel like I've mentioned this a lot over the last few months. It's going to end after this episode, guys, I promise. But uh, it took a lot out of me, and it's done. It's my baby, and I'm proud of my baby. So you can purchase it online, either via McFarland, which is the publisher. It's on Amazon. Amazon. It's available in Target in the States, a couple other places. So if you are interested, please pick it up. If you have picked it up and you enjoyed it, please consider reviewing it on Amazon or Goodreads or something like that. That is a really big help to the book. And if for any reason this book is not quite in your budget right now, I totally understand that. It's not the cheapest book in the world. You can always consider requesting it at your local library. It's a subgenre of a subgenre of a niche, niche, niche book. So it doesn't always get into circulation in a lot of libraries. But if you request it, that always helps. And thank you. I've gotten a lot of support so far on it. And again, obviously, once more publicly, thank you to Andrea for writing such a beautiful forward. Oh, schnucks. My pleasure. And yeah, so it's been an exciting adventure. And uh, we're all on to bigger, stranger, maybe less gory things next. Well, that's right. Next episode is going to be our October episode. October is when we choose a big film, a big film within the horror genre, the kind of film that people come back to every Halloween, and this year is no exception. We're going to take a look at a series of anthology movies, movies that are movies within a movies with bookends. I think they're having a bit of a comeback right now. There's more and more anthology films coming out, but we are going to talk about two classics. We are going to be talking about Trick or Treat and Creepshow. I am so excited. I think that's going to be really fun. And Halloween stuff is already in the stores and I want to buy all of it. So if I'm not broke, we will be here next month. 
we just want to say again we get so much great support from all of you guys and it's so incredible and your tweets and your messages and everything else please keep them coming we love having this discussion we love hearing from you it all becomes part of this show and we hear about so many people who spread the faculty of horror love all around the world very much like our friend in the uk holly galloway who apparently just likes talking about us and has put a lot of people onto this podcast so holly thank you thank you to everyone else who does that. And if you like what we do, please consider rating and writing a review on iTunes. That's a big help to this little show, which is independent. And as a matter of fact, there are, at the moment, a couple of new ways to support the Faculty of Horror, if you wanted to. This is kind of an afterthought before we let you go for the month, but we are having a flash sale. If you follow us on social media, today, the day that we're recording, is the day we launched the sale, and so far, tongues are wagging, things are going really well. We have a very special limited edition t-shirt design, designed by Matthew Terrian, who designed our logo, and he's a good friend of ours. He's a very, very talented fellow. And so he's designed a t-shirt that says class of 2016. And for this month only, we are having them available for pre-order. I'm going to have them printed after September 30th, and they are going to ship on October 15th. So if you want to get your hands on a shirt, you want to visit facultyofhorror.com shop. Or if you follow us on social media, you'll be seeing our advertisement about this. It's a great way to support the show and also wear your love of the Faculty of Horror on your sleeve, so to speak. Although it's a short-sleeved shirt. And it's on your chest. I've also added a donate button to our website. And that was, you know, from the very beginning of this podcast, Alex and I said, look, no money, no monetization, no advertisers, no sponsors. We want to keep it real. We want to keep it indie. But God dang it, our listeners are so damn awesome that they want to support us. They want to help us out. They know how much work we put into this. And, you know, we do pay a little bit out of pocket to keep the website going and to keep everything flowing. So if you do want to buy a t-shirt, please do. And if you do want to toss us a couple of bucks, you've got the opportunity at facultyofhorror.com. Several people have already taken advantage of that. And I don't don't even have words. Thank you so much. You've said it before and we'll say it again. You guys are the best. We are so lucky to have such great listeners. And yeah, we just feel like we have this worldwide extended family and it's really, really cool. And thank you so much for spending a little bit of time and letting us in your earbuds. Alors, à tout à l'heure, mes amis. Office hours est fermé.